Golden Age of Islam podcast. Over the past few episodes, we've been looking at the issue of ethnicity in the Muslim empire, both the rise of the Arab identity as part of Islam and the assertions of cultural pride by other groups, particularly the Persians. We've looked at both sides of this issue, the sort of back and forth, and today we're going to look at probably the most famous classical work on this subject and one that really came to be definitive. And if you have any suspense about who ended up winning in this battle about identity and ethnicity, this book is entitled The Excellence of the Arabs or The Superiority of the Arabs. So you kind of get an idea of how this turned out and explains a lot of what we see in culture today. We're going to be looking at a book by a 9th century Baghdad scholar named Ibn Qutayba. Some of it may make you laugh, some of it may seem strange to you, but this is pretty much going to be the way the issue ends up being decided, at least for that time. So, seeing that this is the position that basically won out in the Abbasid court in the 9th century, at the height of the golden age of Islam, it is definitely worth examining this book. So stay with us today as we talk about Ibn Qutayba and the excellence of the Arabs. Okay, welcome back. So if you've been with us for the last two episodes, you know we talked about the development of the Arab identity and the assertion, which is backed up by a lot of scholarship, that really the idea of a central identification with being Arab and having Arab culture really develops with the coming of Islam and as the Islamic empire becomes much more multicultural. And then we talked about the response to that, the so-called Shubia movement, where various ethnicities uh, express pride in their own culture, in their own heritage. And of course, the lead among these were the Persians. Well, at that time, in Baghdad, about the mid-800s, a man named Ibn Qutayba, who was a very well-placed, respected scholar, wrote a book that became really definitive. And this book is entitled Fadl al-Arab ala al-Ajam. And basically that translates to the superiority of the Arabs over the Persians. Now the most common English translation of this is usually the excellence of the Arabs But this really doesn't get at the competitive nature of what he's saying. Fadl, this word, means greater than, superior. It's related to the word to prefer, and it's where we get the word favorite from. So it's not only saying that, you know, these people are really good. There is a definite sense here of being God's favorite, which is backed up with everything he says in the book. That's definitely the idea that he has. So who was this guy? Well, Ibn Qutayba was no lightweight. I mean, he's not just a propagandist writing some um, 
chauvinistic book about why his people are the best. I mean, if you came across something like that today, this is sort of something you'd expect to find on the fringes of the internet, perhaps. But that is not the case. Uh, Ibn Qutayba wrote over 60 books, and most of these were on some pretty heavy subjects. He was especially big in linguistics, in philology, and the grammar of the Quran. And we're going to see why language is such a big issue for him. But he wrote about all the things that we've seen pretty much all the great scholars of this time writing about. He wrote about Islamic jurisprudence, good government, botany, biology, the interpretation of dreams, and even a brief history from the creation of the world to the present. So this is not exactly the kind of light reading you take with you to the beach on vacation. And this is sort of the thing people were expected to write. They didn't specialize in one particular subject. You were expected to be an adib, someone who was familiar with all the arts and sciences. So looking at a guy like that, with that kind of background, he's going to write this book that is going to prove, at least in his mind, why the Arabs are the the fadl, the, the preferred, the superior um, group of people. Now, who is he? Ibn Qutayba himself was not of Arab origin, which is probably surprising given the nature of his book. His father was from modern-day Turkmenistan, and he moved to Iraq and to, eventually to Baghdad. Uh, Ibn Qutayba's birth name was Abdullah, and he was born in the city of Kufa, which you may remember from way back, previous episodes, is south of Baghdad, and it's the city that the first Muslim conquerors established in Iraq as their garrison. Now, he was born about 70 years after the founding of the Abbasid Caliphate. And we're not sure, but we think he wrote this book in the late 800s. And it's believed during the time of the Caliphate of Al-Mut'amid, which was 870 to 892. So it probably happened around there. Now, this was a critical period in Abbasid history. If you remember way back to those um, episodes from that time, this is what's sometimes called the Abbasid Revival. Now... Remember the story of the Abbasids, of course, they take over from the Umayyads in 750. Uh, they have a period of very strong caliphs who really make this a, the most powerful empire on earth. But then after a while, we have the civil wars, and we have a series of very weak caliphs, and we end up with the infamous anarchy at Samara period. That's when the capital moved to Samara, and basically the, the caliphs had become uh, figureheads. During this time, a lot of the former possessions of this empire, places like Egypt, became essentially independent. Uh, North Africa was pretty much lost um, for the rest of, of history to the Abbasids, and they really lost control of much of the empire. Now, it was about 50 years before this that the Khalifs started bringing in Turkish mercenaries as their military arm. Now, you know I have talked about this point over and over again, that this is really where they start to lose power. And at least the political military power belongs to the Turks. You know, cultural power and the, the official religious power, of course, uh, still belongs to the caliphate. 
So it was about 30 years before Ibn Qutayba's time that Turkish military officers officially took over positions of power in the government. And so they were basically running things. Of course, they couldn't be the caliphs, but they pretty much running everything else. Now, we, we've talked about this so much. I've, I've beaten on this point over and over again. But this really leads to a hollowing out and a weakening of the Abbasid Caliphate. And, of course, there are the rise of rival states by this time. There's Al-Andalus, uh, that's modern-day Spain, and, of course, the Fatimid Shiite caliphate. Um, and so by this point, the Abbasids are in a fairly weak shape. Well, al Mu'tamid and his brother al Muwakaf are going to try to win back the power of the caliphate. So we wonder, you know, why doesn't Ibn Qutayba in this um, environment where he's writing something obviously to please these now um, resurgent Arab Abbasid caliphs, why isn't he trashing on the Turks, the ones who have basically muscled in on the power? Well, the first and most obvious reason for that is that he didn't dare do it. Uh, it's one thing to be asserting about the legitimacy of Arab culture and the importance of Arabs in history. That's one thing. Um, you know, as we've said, the Turks kind of kept out of that, that side of the empire. But you definitely don't want to be insulting the guys with all the weapons. And so in his approach, uh, Ibn Qutayba is going to talk about the greatness of the Arabs, why they're the best, why they are the preferred, even though he's not actually from that origin himself, but the, the bosses that he is trying to impress are. And he definitely wants to counter the Persians. That is the main target of what he's writing, who were the main ones who had been asserting the greatness of their culture. But other than that, he doesn't want to make a lot of enemies, and so he definitely doesn't want to upset the Turks. And so he even at one point cites a hadith of the Prophet that says, quote, Leave the Turks alone as long as they leave you alone. Okay, so that's uh, pretty straightforward. So that's one reason he's not going to mess with them. But uh, secondly, and you know, this is a more you know sort of honest uh, reason, is that what he's writing about here is about culture, cultural superiority, superior behavior and values. Right? What kind of culture is going to be the flavor of the Muslim world? And the Persians are the real challengers in that regard. Um, you know, as we've said, the Abbasids have borrowed a lot from Persia. Uh, you can see it in their architecture and their bureaucratic system. But is the Muslim world basically going to be a Persian empire or are we going to lift up Arab culture? Okay, so that's the important issue that he's dealing with, and the Turks are really not—they're um, not competitors in that. I mean, at least at, not at this point. We're not at the point where we're talking about the rise of the Ottoman Empire with a great culture of its own. So, in a way, he's kind of making common cause with the Turkish military leader. You know, you guys are the muscle, and the Arabs—you know—we're we're the culture part of it. And it's these Persians. They're the troublemakers. So it, it kind of works out very well. Now, as far as other groups go, 
As we've mentioned way back, you may remember that the power base of the Abbasids, and particularly the branch that comes to rule the empire uh, after El Ma'mun's rise. Remember, he was the great caliph we've talked about, and he got his power base from Khorasan, which is in today northeastern Iran, and it relied on them to a great extent. So Ibn Qutayba leaps, uh, I mean, just tremendous praise on the Khorasanis. In fact, he comes right out and says, after the Arabs, the next greatest people are the Khorasanis. And they're just so nice. You can always trust them. You can always rely on them. They're humble and, and so forth. And he even goes so far as to distinguish the fact uh, that the Persians and Khorasanis are not exactly the same thing. Okay, so Khorasan is in northeastern Iran, which we associate with Persia, but he wants to separate them out from the other Persians. So he takes all the positive statements that the prophet made about Persians, and there are some where he talks about you know the greatness of the Persians in different ways. And say, what he really means, he's talking about Khorasanis there. And anything bad said about Persians, that's actually talking about Persians. So what you're seeing is this thing is, is definitely very politically motivated. Um, this is not just some guy writing in, in, in an academic ivory tower or something. He's very much pitching to the political world of his day. But nonetheless, it's going to be important in, in shaping that world and the way things um, turn out. So as it, as it works, you know, Ibn Qutayba is actually a great guy to write this book because he's a non-Arab himself, which he makes very clear. Uh, he came from out in Central Asia, uh, just like these Turks. Okay? So you can't say that he's biased towards his own people, that he's like a, a bigot or a chauvinist, because he's not uh, praising the greatness of his own folks. But he is an intellectual, he's a court official, he's very well placed in the, the court of Baghdad, so his opinion is going to be important. He is a guy who adopted Arab culture, and specifically the Arab language, because of his education. I mean, you had to learn it in order to study uh, Islamic law, to study uh, the philology. As I said, his big area of emphasis is really on Arabic language. So he's a great guy. He's a guy who's not an Arab, who was not born into it, but he just loves the culture, and particularly its language, and he can tell you why it's so much better than these other cultures he grew up around. So he's, he's a great guy to be, to be writing this. Okay, so let's look at what he's actually going to say here. Ibn Qutayba directs his attacks mostly at the Sha'ubis, and he uses this word. We talked about this word in the previous episode, and that's the label he uses for his opponents. 
for the most part, he does not call out specific individuals. Sometimes he talks about certain people say, or there are those people who say this. But he talks about the showbies, and this is important because it's basically calling out anyone who is asserting a non-Arab cultural identity. So it applies to all of them. Of course he's attacking the Persians straight up. That's who he's really going after. But this could apply to all of them. So we talked about how this came to be seen as a negative term, and today it is very much a negative term. Even Saddam Hussein used it. And the way that he is using it is doing a lot to establish this as a negative term. I mean, he writes so many bad things about the Shubis, nobody would want to be identified as one. At some points, he can be pretty extreme in what he says. At one point, he describes the Shubis, quote, their hearts are so full of envy and ill will that they deny the Arabs every virtue and ascribe to them every vice. They slander, lie, and dispute plain facts, very nearly abandoning their faith until only the sword keeps them in line. End quote. Okay, pretty strong stuff here. First of all, I mean, they're just absolute. They deny every good thing about Arabs and say every bad thing possible about them, and it's pure lies. And then he puts a religious uh, sort of tinge to this. They do this, they insult the Arabs so much that they almost abandon the religion, which of course is, is, is a cause for death, or apostasy. And only the sword keeps them in line. I mean, that's that's how bad they're. They're ready to give up the religion, and they would do it if we didn't uh, keep them under the sword. So this is pretty extremely negative. And we talked about the um, teachings of the Shaubis and the writings of the Shaubis last week. And I mean, they definitely are not coming to this level of what he's describing. I mean, he's really, really blowing this way out of proportion. Okay, now. He can't help but grant some of their claims. I mean, you can't say that Persian culture was never any good and that, you know, these people were just living in squalor. So he has to say that that's that's true. Yes, the Persian culture did some good things. But that was before the Arab tribes came together. Okay, and yeah, they did have a rich urban civilization and the Arabs borrowed a lot from it. But then comes Islam, which brings the Arab tribes together. And from that point on, it's, it's very clear. Remember, we're talking about the fadl of the Arabs, right? The preference, the priority of the, the Arabs. So, I mean, definitely from that point on, God's plan is, you know, give everything good to the Arabs. And, you know, the Persians are, are washed up. And he says, I mean, a culture that was once great but has lost its greatness I mean, not exactly uh, accurate, but it describes what he's thinking. Now, he has to set, of course, this whole thing in the grand scheme of God's plan. You know, so if if the Arabs are the the favorite people, you know, then then why weren't they the leaders from the beginning? Why weren't they making all the great scientific discoveries and great architecture and everything from day one? So he has to uh, explain this. Now, he uses a fairly clever argument here, and so it's worth uh, going in and looking at the way he traces this. And so this line of reasoning goes back to the beginning, 
right? When Abraham and his son Ishmael are said to have established the Kaaba in Mecca as the center of true monotheism. And we discussed that whole story uh, two episodes ago when we were talking about the Arab identity, um, which is really based on a, a, a loose interpretation of the Quran and, and the Old Testament. But this says that Abraham, who of course we see as you know, the father of monotheism, he of course has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Now Isaac, of course, we know is well documented in the Bible. He established Judaism. And so he went off to, you know, what is the Levant, what is today Palestine, in that area. He established Judaism, which was a monotheism that had a lot of errors in it. Ishmael, on the other hand, he went to Arabia, and he took the true monotheism with him. It's not Judaism, right, but it is the true monotheism, basically the way Abraham would have had it. Now, this, of course, is not the interpretation, say, a Jew or most Christians would use, but uh, it works. Okay. Now, Ibn Qutayba goes on to say that the Quraysh tribe, now that, of course, is the tribe of Muhammad and is the tribe from which leadership is, is derived. Up, you know, up to this point, all the caliphs have been from the Quraysh. I mean, that was never in, in any question. I mean, the idea that anyone else would assert... Um, that authority was, at least within the Sunni um, tradition, was not possible. So the Quraysh tribe, according to him, were always the custodians of the Kaaba as God's holy house, the, I mean, the key place of worship, and it was, you know, the center of true monotheism right up until almost the period right before Islam. Because we cannot deny that at the time that Islam comes, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, um, the Quraysh were, I mean, it had definitely turned to paganism, and the Kaaba had become the major center of idol worship. Remember, it had 360 tribal idols in it. So, I mean, you can't say they've preserved it forever. But uh, Ibn Qutayba is going to really push the period for which the true monotheism existed as far as he can and keep this narrative going. Now, we do know from uh, historical records that there were monotheistic Arabs in the period before Islam, some of whom converted to Christianity, but some of them stayed independent. They became these Hanifs, monotheists, but not Jews, not Christians, and of course, up until that point, not not Muslims. The thing is that they were a very small uh, minority, and for the most part, they were in conflict with the Quraysh through history as much as we've seen. So Ibn Qutayba, and he's not the only one to do this, this is a very popular narrative, is going to you know, use the, the unknowns here and really stretch this as much as he can to say that, I mean, the, the Quraysh were, I mean, just really rock-solid monotheists with the, the perfect, the true monotheism, which was much better than the Judaism, right up almost to the beginning. Then there's this period where all these pagans come in, and that's when the prophet Muhammad um, comes in. Okay, 
So that, that's part of his logic. Now, he's on much firmer ground once he gets to the coming of Islam, because now we have, you know, very clear historical records, and he can talk about what happens. And, of course, it, it fits his agenda very well. Okay. Now, he mentions, uh, by the way, he talks about uh, the coming of Islam, and he says, quote, when there were no Easterners around, end quote. By Easterners, he means Persians. And he, he mentions this over and over, that the Persians, they have no prophet. They didn't get a message. They, I mean, they weren't even around when it came in. Right? So at this point, God's favoritism for the Arabs which, you know, may have been hard to show beforehand. It may have been a little bit shaky trying to claim that it was there. At that point, it comes into full force. From then on, there is no question about this. So he says, quote, God caused the Arabs to multiply and put an end to dissension among them, supported them with his angels, strengthened them with his power, and then he established them in the land and enabled them to tread on the other nations' necks. End quote. Uh, and of course, amongst those other nations are Persians. Now, this is very key because he says, you know, they did have, uh, the Persians did have some power and influence before this. But, and here he says, quote, Then God sent Islam, and the Persian fire died, its ashes scattered to the wind. The Persians were completely torn to pieces and lost their nerve. Hardly any notables survived the coming of Islam. Uh, end quote. Now, you know how many great uh, Persian notables we, we've talked about since the coming of Islam. I mean, people from Ibn Sina and all these great uh, scientists. But he, he's going to really, really downplay this. So then he says that, Everything that the Persians once had was given by God to the Arabs, so it now belongs to the Arabs. Well, so this is some pretty strong uh, history that he's using here, but it definitely is supported by the recent history, at least, uh, because the, the Muslims definitely did conquer Persia. And so obviously, what better proof can you have than that? Wow. Okay. So that's basically his version of history here, to, to show why um, the Arabs are preferred. Now, he's going to go on to address uh, a very specific claim. This is one we've seen before, and it's in fact where that shubi uh, word comes from. And th these are those who claim that in Islam, all people are equal. And there are, of course, numerous verses in the Quran that say that. They say that now one's status is based on how pious you are, how righteous you are, rather than your lineage, right? rather than your status and your birth. Okay? And that's a very big theme in the Quran, that only God is superior, not individual humans uh, superior over one another. So you really have to do some mental gymnastics to come out with a, a book like uh, The Superiority of the Arabs. Uh, but Ibn Qutayba is he's good at doing a lot of gymnastics. Right? He's, he's good with the language, and he has a lot of education, and so he's going to do that. Now, I find in looking at this book and the way he writes, you can usually tell when he's tap dancing uh, because 
if he has a quote that supports his position, he just throws it out there. He says, like the Quran says, boom. All right, like the prophet said, boom, and he puts it right out there. Um, when he has something that sounds like it goes against him, like all these statements about people being equal, then he gives a very convoluted explanation for how this saying doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. And he does a lot of that, and so you can kind of tell when he's on stronger on or weaker ground. Now, he says that people who quote those verses about everyone being equal say they have only a superficial understanding. He, of course, has a deeper understanding, and he's going to show it to us. But, I mean, he takes something that sounds pretty straightforward and incontrovertible, and then says, well... No, no, you have to look at it from a deep understanding. So he goes on then to give a lot of references uh, when the prophet allegedly refers to some people as chiefs or as noblemen. And, I mean, they're not really strong uh, references in that sense, but he calls somebody the chief of a certain tribe. Well, how can you do that if everybody is equal? That must mean somebody is the leader there. And so, I mean, it's kind of a stretch, but he's, he has to deal with this claim. Then he goes on to make an analogy to the body and how some parts of the body are superior to others. The head is superior to other parts of the body. And, of course, who created the body? God created the body. So why would he create all people to be equal? Okay, with this in mind, uh, then Ibn Qutayba can make the claim right out that, quote, God has decreed that the Quraysh are superior to all his creation, end quote. Wow, so that sounds like it contradicts a lot. Now, this is based on a very loose interpretation of some verses in the Quran. Um, for most of the time when the Quran addresses the Quraysh, it's scolding them, it's telling them to repent and get their act together. Because remember, they were uh, initially, these were the opponents of the prophet Muhammad, who expelled him from Mecca and caused him to have to leave and then come back and reconquer. And that's what most of the verses are doing. They're addressing these people who are pagans at that time. Okay. So he uses some very, very crooked logic in addressing these passages to explain them. Um, now, other quotes he's pretty liberal with. Uh, he quotes things that support him. So, in fact, he quotes Surat al-Imran. This is verse 110, in which God says, quote, You are the best community that has ever been brought out among mankind, end quote. And he says that shows the favor of the Arabs. They're the best community that has ever been brought out. But this verse, particularly when you read it in context, is very clearly referring to the Muslim community, the, the Ummah, of people who are specifically brought together as Muslims, and is comparing them with previous Jewish and Christian communities. Uh, it says nothing in there about Arabs or ethnicity. So he's making some very loose um, uh, interpretations, and he's doing some real cherry-picking. Okay, so where he's on more strong ground, and he has you know somewhat firmer logic here, is his claim that God likes the Quraysh especially because he chose his prophet from among them. And other groups haven't produced any prophets for a long time. 
Now, of course, he says the Persians never produced a prophet. I mean, because they are pretty much at the rock bottom of his list of peoples. So they have never produced a prophet. Now, he, he doesn't point out whether Turks have produced a prophet or not. But he has to say this because, of course, he's referencing the Jews. I mean, they had a lot of prophets, but they haven't produced any for a long time. Okay? So he then goes on to note that God established the caliphate and gave it to the Quraysh, which of course is a historical um, fact that the Quraysh have the caliphate. But he says that God did that and that this is an eternal caliphate that will last until the final judgment. It's not like any other government that rises and falls. Now, we know that that ends up not being true. It doesn't last anywhere close to that, and it's not around uh, today. But we have to remember, at the time that he's writing, he could make that claim. I mean, the, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate was still strong. I mean, of course, he's going to say it's the strongest you know, government in the world, and that it will last forever. We talked way back about the concepts of Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb and this idea that this Muslim, basically, state is going to spread and continue until it encompasses all the world. And he's saying, of course, the Quraysh are going to rule it until the end of time. So he's basically following doctrine when he says, look, you know, other kingdoms rose and fall, but the Quraysh, this Arab kingdom, is going to be around forever. Well, what if the Persians don't like this interpretation? What if they look at, upon it differently? Well, that makes them very bad. They're not just wrong, um, but they're actually um, irreligious. He goes on to say, quote, what proper and devout Muslim who abides by the requirements of his religion, would deny the Quraysh precedence and put others on a par with them, end quote. I mean, even to make them equal, say, okay, you know, all people are equal and the Quraysh are wonderful. No, proper and devout Muslim would never do that. You see, so if you consider yourself equal to the Quraysh, you're violating God's commands, you're not even a real Muslim. Um, and, of course, he's targeting the Persians with that. I mean, you have to admit that you're inferior, or you're not only wrong, but you're basically like a pagan. Now, this is some pretty heavy stuff. He's laying it on very strong, but he can get away with that. These people are the rulers, and they have been the rulers since Islam was established, so he can say that and have the, the backing of the state. out the case of why the Quraysh are superior, basically because God commands everyone to acknowledge that, uh, Ibn Qutayba now goes on to describe the ways in which Arabs are better than Persians. And this is sort of, you know, what the book is about, the, um, the superiority of them. It's one thing to just say they, they are, they're superiors or just accept it. But now he's going to 
talk about what specifically they are so good at. And this is important because otherwise the book wouldn't really be that important to us if it just said, you know, Arab people are the best. It's going to establish what aspects of Arab culture, of Arab learning, of Arab values really distinguish them and with the case he's making, these are going to become the values of the whole Muslim world. They should be. I mean, is he saying if you're a proper and devout Muslim, then you should say that these things that the, the Quraysh and the Arabs do are the best. Okay, so he's going to describe the ways that, that which they are better. Now, uh, what's happening is it's a pretty clever approach because, you know, first you have to agree that these people are the best, and they say, okay, yeah, you, you've shown us, yes, they are the best. Okay, well, if you believe that, then these values, these sciences, these traditions, these customs, therefore, those must be the best as well. Right? He's kind of working you into that. Okay, so through this, Ibn Qutayba is going to dictate what kind of character is considered noble. Now, we've seen already the rise of the Arab identity, in previous episodes, he's going to list what skills and values make up that identity. And these are going to end up being venerated. And even today, uh, many of the things we're going to name here are things that are still very respected among the Arabs. Now, what we have to remember is he's in Baghdad. He's writing to you know a very elite audience. He's not living out with the Bedouin. So he's going to talk about how tough they are, how rugged, um, their survival uh, skills, and so forth. I mean, he's not, the people he's writing through are, are not doing any of that stuff. So this is kind of like politicians in Washington today talking about how much they love being on the farm, or, you know, people who go to fancy Western stores in the mall to buy $500 cowboy boots and cowboy hats, you know, stuff that real cowboys never had, you know, or, you know, a Japanese business tycoon venerating this samurai. You find these in every culture. There is the sort of stereotypical, ideal, uh, noble person doesn't mean he's talking about things that are actually being practiced at the time he's writing. So Ibn Qutayba is going to take the comments of Shubi writers about the Arabs and turn these into virtues. That's one of the first thing he has to do. So, for example, the Persians mock the Arabs for eating lizards and bugs and bloody fur, which apparently was, is a big thing. I mean, I never really thought about people eating bloody fur, but uh, this is something Ibn Qutayba mentions many, many times. It really bugs them, the fact that people have brought this up. And it is true. Persians, it, it basically, as part of their humor and part of their poetry, are talking a lot about Bedouin out there eating lizards and so forth. So he's going to take sort of the Bear Grylls approach to this and say... This shows how tough they are. I mean, of course, they would like to eat fancy foods, but they didn't have the opportunity. Now, you Persians couldn't last a day out there in the desert. You'd all starve, right? Now, interestingly enough, having made that uh, specific claim and showing that this is because they are tougher, he says, but then, by the way, eating with your hands is actually better than the way the Persians eat. And this quote here is just worth repeating because it's, it's so good. You have to hear this. Okay, here we go. He says, As for the boast that the Easterners eat with knives and forks, 
It is obvious that using cutlery spoils food and reduces the pleasure of eating it. Apart from those obstinate liars who say the opposite of what they know in their hearts, everyone knows that the best foods are those that you touch with your hand. The palm of your hand was created for this very purpose, for picking up food. It is foolish and strange to think that the hands are unclean when they have been properly washed. Okay, so, you know, we we eat bugs and we eat lizards and we eat with our hands because we have to and because we're tough. But, oh, by the way, it's also better. And this is something that uh, Ibn Qutayba does a lot. It's something in argumentation is known as over-determination, where you give more than one completely sufficient reason for why something is so. And when you do that, typically in in most debating, it's seen to weaken an argument. So I say, well, why do they eat like this? Well, they eat like that because they had to. But also, it's better. Okay, now, beyond this, he uh, cites the Arabs for their courage. He says, they fought on foot while the Persians used horses. And this is true, the Persians were famous for their cavalry. Uh, The Persians used bows and arrows, the Arabs used swords and sticks. Now you get this, it's macho stuff, right? I'm on a horse and I shoot you from long distance, whereas the Arab is going to meet you face to face and take you on with a stick, okay? And so he shows this, and I mean, there is a lot of truth to this. I mean, this is the way they fought, and to be a Bedouin, you had to be very tough. So he's bringing up some stuff that they would have a hard time arguing against. And the proof of this, of course, is that you guys once had a great empire, but we conquered you. And as Ibn Qutayba notes, our empire is going to last forever and cover the whole world. And again, there is this over-determination. We conquered you because God ordained this from the beginning of time, and he likes our people better than you, and that's why we defeated you. Oh, but by the way, we're also tougher than you. We're better fighters. Okay, so I mean, he's giving you more than one reason. All right, so having laid out this case and, and shown that, I mean, obviously the Arabs are superior, he's going to talk about the sciences and the knowledge of the Arabs that are unique to them. And about half of his time is spent doing that. And here we have two levels, things he talks about, the divine and the mundane. So Arabs are superior in the religious sciences, but they're also better at the other stuff as well. Now, it's worth quoting the introduction uh, to this section as well. Quote, There are two kinds of knowledge. One is Islamic, a product of Muslim religion and the Arabic language. It includes jurisprudence, grammar, and the study of poetic themes. These fields are particular to the Arabs. Non-Arabs can master them only by learning and parroting. The Arabs alone possess the brilliance and glory of having developed them. The other is age-old knowledge common to all peoples. God has granted the Arabs a share of every field of which I am aware, and in some they alone come to possess unrivaled knowledge. Okay, so interesting here, he's saying that a non-Arab can only get an approximate religious education, 
And that's, of course, that's what he is. I mean, he's a guy who spent most of his time studying the Arabic language, um, but he's not uh, an, an Arab uh, by birth. Now, on the one hand, he is consciously excluding a lot of people who claim to be re religious authorities here, and particularly Shiites um, that he's going after. Remember, at this time, the Fatimid Caliphate is powerful. It's probably the most powerful Muslim state, and these are North African Shiites. Remember, his definition of Arab is much more narrow than what we have today. He's talking about the Bedouin from the Arabian Peninsula. Why is it that non-Arabs can only parrot? Well, this can only be because of language, you know, and that's very important in his whole schema. But what he's saying here is that anyone else is not using their native language. So you can learn a lot about the Arabic language, but you're approaching it from an outsider. And this is why at this time we see such an interest in scholars, linguistic scholars, going to live with the Bedouin to study their grammar. And actually, this um, continues to this day. I point out you hear this argument today, and it's somewhat misleading because the formal language of the Quran is something that anybody has to learn. It's quite different from the Arabic spoken at home. Um, but even at the time he's talking about, there was definitely a colloquial uh, Arabic which was somewhat different than the formal. He's about 200 years after when the Quran is first revealed. So when he's talking about Quranic Arabic being native to Arabs, he is at best talking about a very small uh, proportion around Mecca who spoke the, the dialect of that area, which becomes Quranic Arabic, and even then it's changed somewhat. So this is somewhat misleading when he's saying the Arabs, and he's talking about all the tribes coming together, have the true language. Well, by the standard he's using, it would only be some of them. But it makes sense that this is a great place to start, because if you can't understand the language, then how are you going to understand all the other stuff, all the other writings out there about jurisprudence and about philosophy and theology and all these other things when you don't even have the basics, you don't even have the language. But interestingly, if you noticed in that division he made, when he talks about the Islamic sciences, it's not just what we would think, right? He includes things like poetry in there. So it's really heavily language-based. Well, what about other things besides language? Well, the first one that Ibn Qutayba lists is horse husbandry. And he says that the Greeks, the Romans, the Indians, and the Persians, they possess only a smattering, which is, quote, barely worth note or considering, end quote. Of course, now the Persians were very proud horsemen, but he just dismisses them offhand. I mean, they what they know about horses is not even worth considering. The Arabs know far much more. And he doesn't even mention the Central Asian Turks, which is smart because they're probably the greatest horsemen uh, at this time. So his proof here, though, is going to be the same way he analyzes everything. And it's not the same way we would go about it today. He looks at the language to find proof. And then after that, he draws his evidence from poetry. Okay, that's not where you would think to go for this. So the fact that the Arabic has so many different words for parts of horses, and I mean, any Arabic student will know they have a lot of different words for horse, 
um, shows that they must really be into this. Why would you have this unless you, you know, really, really study this? Now, he uses the same uh, logic to talk about why the Arabs are the most knowledgeable about the stars, the clouds, and the winds. Right? The proof is that they have so many different names for these things, and their poetry is full of detailed references to specific constellations or types of clouds in Shoah. Right? It's logical that the people who live and travel in the desert would need to know these things. I mean, if you're going to navigate in, de in a desert right, where there's really no roads and signposts, you definitely need to know the stars. Uh, you definitely need to be able to follow the clouds to find what, what little water there is out there. And you definitely need to know a lot about the winds because the winds can bring sandstorms that will kill you. So these are important things to know. And for example, maritime nations, they're also famous for knowing these kind of things because they need those to navigate at sea. Well, if you live in Persia, of course, you just follow roads to cities, and so they're not as good at this. Okay. So there's a deeper level here, though, and that is all of this stuff is all about nature. And, of course, nature is close to God, and people have always associated the stars with God. Right? Rain and wind have been seen as things that come from the gods or are withheld with the gods. Okay, so you don't associate, say, roads or buildings with God. And so you see here we have a different kind of knowledge. Not only do the Arabs know more than these Persians, but what do they know about deep knowledge, true knowledge, nature, you know, about God's creation, you know, not about how to build a palace or something. Now, it's interesting here that uh, Ibn Qutayba dedicates nine chapters to the specific sciences of the Arabs. Among those, four of these are about speaking. And these are oratory, poetry, wisdom poetry, and prose. In other chapters, he lumps a lot of other sciences together. So it's this real big emphasis of language in the Arab culture. I mean, you have to divide it up into these areas. Now, talked a lot about Arabic language before. In Arabic, of course, gets a big boost with the coming of the Quran, which we've discussed is verbatim in Arabic. It's not an interpretation. It's word for word. So therefore, it becomes extremely important to know that exact language. And then with the Umayyads, this becomes the state language. This is the official language. If you want to work in it, you have to work in Arabic. Now that's all good, but actually Islam is really building on the importance that language already had for the Arabs. It was definitely for the Bedouin uh, their primary form of art, of entertainment, even of competition between people. Now think, if you're a Bedouin who moves constantly, who doesn't have any permanent structures, uh, what kind of arts and entertainment can you have? I mean, you don't have painting, you don't have statues, you don't have really architecture, you're not going to have theater, but things you can do on the move, right? Poetry, storytelling, singing, these are going to become very important. And so even before Islam, poetry contests were a big deal. I mean, people ended up getting killed over some of these poetry contests where one tribe would be trying to outdo another. Here is what he says about poetry. Quote, poetry is the Arabs. 
No other nation has ever equaled the Arabs' meters, prosodies, and rhyme schemes, nor the Arabs' descriptions of love, encampments, traces of Barangon settlements, mountains, desert sands, wastelands, night journeys, or the stars. The Easterners' poems and songs were unstructured in speech and prose. Some did subsequently hear the Arabs' poems and grasp their meters and prosody, which they then tried to contrive in Persian in imitation of the Arabic. Poetry is the source of the Arabs' learning, the basis of their wisdom, the archive of their history, the repository of their battle lore. Okay, end quote. So he's admitting that the, the Persians did have some poetry, but he's really uh, cutting it down in terms of what quality it is. Now, it is true that Arabic poetry is extremely elaborate. But the Persians also have a proud poetic tradition themselves. But just like their horsemanship, it's not even worth uh, noting. So what Islam did was it took something that was already very important to these people and made it even more important. I mean, really pushed it up to the highest level of importance. Okay, well, if that's the case, again, who's the best at it? Well, of course, it's the Arabs. It's the people who speak this as their native language. And so here again, we have this sort of overdetermination. Arabic is the best language. Why? Because it's the language of the Quran. It's the language that God used. But it was already the best language, even before that, okay? which is trashing the, the Persian, which has a very great uh, poetic tradition. But Arabic poetry is very, very elaborate, and the language is definitely... Um, a poetic language. Of course, we have to remember that his targets are the Persians. And why attack the Persians so hard on language? Because they are largely filling the roles of the bureaucrats in the system, and they are largely the intellectuals. We've talked about so many important Persian intellectuals. So these are people who are very good with language. They're very good with the Arabic language, and they have a long tradition with their own language. So they're sort of muscling in on this. If the Turks are taking over the military, the Persians have, to a large extent, taken over the, uh, the businesses that do with writing. So Ibn Qutayba wants to make clear, yeah, I mean, they may have those jobs, but they're always going to be imitators. They're always going to be using someone else's language. Who really understands this language? It's the people who were born into it. Now, there's this odd section in Ibn Qutayba's book where he talks about sciences that he thinks are bad, but the Arabs are still the best at them. So the pre-Islamic Arabs were known for their sciences of divination, meaning they could unlock hidden knowledge by looking at birds or trees or the, the sands of the desert. And so Ibn Qutayba talks a lot about how good they were at this. But then he says it was because demons used to eavesdrop on God and reveal what they heard to the people who were practicing these sciences. Therefore, these are demonic sciences, and we have to reject them. But it's interesting that he prefaces the chapter talking about these things by saying, quote, Some mistakenly believe that the Arabs have no expertise in these areas, but actually they have the greatest share of it. 
unquote. So it's like, even though these things are bad and we don't do them anymore, we're still better than you are. I mean, it's like, we've got to be best at everything. Okay. Then there's this curious statement he makes that all the sciences of the Arabs belong to them alone, and they didn't get them from anywhere else, whereas the Persians, well, they inherited all their sciences from other people. Now, this is a strange statement to make. I mean, we, we can argue about where they got poetry from or horsemanship and so forth, because then he's going to go on to talk about all the other sciences that the Muslim world borrowed from the Greeks is who he mentions, but they actually borrowed them from the Greeks and the Hindus and so forth. Uh, talking about medicine, logic, and mathematics. And these, as you know, these are the things that the Muslim world really becomes famous for after the coming of Islam. We've talked about so many of the great figures uh, in these fields. And in fact, of course, the golden age of Islam is more famous for these things than it is for horsemanship, uh, for example, or uh, knowledge of the stars. Now, all of these things, he points out, these all came from the Greeks, and you can guess, none of these came from the Persians. This, of course, is not true, because uh, a lot of knowledge came from India and China via Persia and were further developed by the Persians. So when we talk about uh, what we call the, the Arabic numerals today, and specifically the very important concept of zero, uh, this is a concept that begins in India, but it's really developed further in Persia, and it's further developed in the in the Caliphate. Okay, but it shows that he's really more interested in putting down the Persians than raising up the Arabs. So it's okay to say that yeah, we got all these other great stuff from the Greeks. Why? Because we're not really worried about a competition with the Greeks. So even if we have to give them the credit, at least we're not crediting the Persians here. Okay, and then he's sort of degrading his own claim that the Arabs didn't get their sciences from anyone else when, of course, the greatest achievements associated with Arab scientists do come from adaptations of the Greeks. And so we could really get a sense of what he's doing here. He's really far more interested in you know, making the Persians look really bad, encountering them more so than showing that the uh, the Arabs were independent in the area of knowledge. Okay, so having looked at this book by uh, Ibn Qutayba, it's, it's an interesting read if you want to read it, um, but this ends up becoming like the definitive word on the Shubia controversy. Now, normally we'd expect like a cultural rivalry like this, sort of the peter out and there's no real winners and losers and you know both kind of carry on but actually the arab identity really wins out here and this is to a great extent why today we call everything from morocco to oman the arab world and why people like let's say egyptians sudanese and syrians who were definitely not Arabs in Ibn Qutayba's time. And when he talks about the Arabs, he definitely does not mean Egyptians and Moroccans when he's saying that, although today, I mean, we would say that, right? They're part of the Arab League, for example. Well, why do they take up that identity? Well, the most common definition today of the word Arab is someone who speaks Arabic 
and who identifies themselves as part of the Arab world. Now we see how the first part came about, right? The imposition of Arabic as the official language of the whole empire by the Umayyads uh, meant that this became the language of places like Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, and so forth. So that's where we get that first part about speaking Arabic. The second part really comes about in this resolution of the whole Shu'biyah controversy, when it becomes preferable for Muslims to associate with Arab culture. And so if you're living in Egypt, or what is today Tunisia at that time, you can see the idea is it's much better to be associated with this Arab culture, the nobility of uh, things like being, being tough and close to nature and hospitality and so forth. Now, interestingly, some populations kept their own languages and stayed outside of these, and the biggest, of course, is Persian, which is an outlier. I mean, one of the questions I get asked most often by students, uh, particularly first-year students, is, why is Iran not considered an Arab country, and why they don't speak Arabic? Now, of course, that's better than 90% of the U.S. population who doesn't even know that that's true. Well, the answer to this is two parts, of course. Why don't they speak Arabic is because they had such a strong culture, literary tradition, and bureaucracy, and so forth, that even as they adopted Arabic as their religious and bureaucratic language, they still kept Persian, and they can do both. And so that's why the language doesn't go away. Um, why are they not considered Arabs? Well, first of all, they don't speak Arabic, and here it's the, this thing about the Shubia, where they're asserting their Persian character and less adopting the Arab identity that someone like Ibn Qutayba, who's not an Arab himself, wants to adopt. Okay, so this is how they end up being seen as outliers. Now, after this time, of course, Islam is going to spread throughout the world, and most of what is the Islamic world today is not part of the Arab world. What ends up being the Arab world is you know, basically what the Umayyads controlled, minus a few things. Okay? And so that's why these large countries like uh, Turkey, Indonesia, Pakistan, much of Central Asia, and so forth, which are, you know, very highly, 90% or more Muslim, and very definitely a part of the Muslim world, are not considered Arabs. Okay? They don't adopt Arabic as their daily language, because they're never really under the empire, and they don't identify with this Arab culture uh, the way the others do. Now, this sounds like um, really such a, a silly thing and, you know, perhaps a trivial thing, but the impact in the long term is huge. So this is why we can think of the, the Arab world is encompassing most of North Africa and, you know, a large chunk of Asia, but not including, say, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Iran, Pakistan, and so forth. Well, it's really set out here. There's no reason why Egyptians and Moroccans would become Arabs, and let's say um, Turks and Persians would not. At least at the beginning, um, neither one of them were Arabs. Well, why is it that some become seen that way and others don't? Well, a lot of it is wrapped up in this Shubia uh, concept. And so it actually has a huge impact, even to this day. 
Well, that concludes our discussion of ethnicity in Islam. Uh, we'd be glad to hear from you on Facebook on our page, The Golden Age of Islam. If you haven't gone to that page and liked that page and left your comments, please do that. We very much appreciate them. So we hope to see you again next time for that. Again, shukran jazilin. We hope to hear from you, and we'll see you soon. Ma salama. <laughs>